This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobeski, selected King Ralph, the 1991 film starring John Goodman and John Hurt. But we will not be watching that this week. Instead, we will be watching The Elephant Man. Welcome to Cinematic Respect, everybody. I'm your first co-host, Jessica Clares. And I'm your second co-host, Charlie Wallace. And with us today, we've got our third co-host, executive producer, Adam Gobeski. Hello. And today, our guest returning is Brianne Gobeski. Welcome back to the show, Brianne. Hi. It's great to be back. Uh, Hopefully, you enjoyed this movie a little bit more than La La Land. Yes, I did. Yes. Oh, good. (laughs) The movie sucks. I remember having a very heated debate with both of you. (laughs) So today, since we're watching a movie that has some startlingly good makeup, so I'm throwing this question to you all. What is your favorite makeup or costume in a movie? Uh, Let's start with Adam. Uh... I don't know. It's such a broad question, right? Like, there's well, lots yeah, of... it's just exactly. Your but I didn't want to make it too specific. Not necessarily either. the best, just your favorite. Yeah. No, that's still a broad question, <laughs> right? Lord of the Rings. There's Star Trek. There's various Marvel things. You know, it's a there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, a lot of options. What about Marvel specifically? Your favorite Marvel costume? My favorite Marvel costume? Yes. Uh, Doctor Strange. Including the uh, facial hair? Yeah, the facial hair, but only when he's a surgeon. (laughs) (laughs) Really like the scrubs. (laughs) The plain blue scrubs, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I realize it is a pretty broad question. And after thinking for a while, I just came up with Nosferatu from the film of the same name, which I hadn't actually watched until Halloween of this last year. And it... Holds up really well, just as a film, but also the makeup is, it's pretty scary. It's not falling off him? It's not falling off him. The teeth managed to uh, stay in. Oh, so it does hold up. (laughs) (laughs) He may still be in that makeup today, for all we know. Jessica? Sorry. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to go, you said favorite, not best. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go with uh, Beetlejuice, because it's ridiculous. Nice. That's a pretty good one. Also some interesting teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Brianne, how about you? Um, I kind of went with a style that I've recently kind of was reintroduced to this past week. The 2006 Pan's Labyrinth, directed by Guillermo del Toro. I just think his style of makeup and costuming is so distinct, but absolutely beautiful. Between the fawn and the white man in that movie, that was just almost, it was beautiful and terrifying at the same time. So, or Pale Man, excuse me, it was the Pale Man. What reintroduced you to this this past um, week? I was recently watching um, Face Off, uh, which is, they did a special. <laughs> the, the, oh, not, the TV not, show. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, stage makeup. Um, competition where they compete in doing this, you know, make the different um, makeup and costuming. And the week that I was just recently watching was all on Guillermo del Toro, which I actually watched right before we saw Elephant Man. So it was kind of a good introduction. Um, And it's just beautiful, beautiful work being done by that by uh, that director. Yeah, it's one of Cara's favorite shows. So I've watched plenty of that. So, Brianne, this episode, you chose The Elephant Man as the movie we should watch. So you hadn't seen it before. Why did you choose this particular film? Well, I chose The Elephant Man because I am currently cast in a in the play rendition of um, this story. And in my research uh, for my part and being a part of this uh, production, I realized I've never actually seen the 1980s movie with Anthony Hopkins and John Hurt. So I thought that this would be an excellent opportunity, not only for me to watch the movie um, and something to be able to participate with cinematic respect, but also some research material for me in my um, production as well. So the production that you're in, when was that originally created? The play was originally opened in 1977. Oh, okay. um, And then was... Uh, produced on Broadway in 1979, and I believe it won a Tony for this play as well. Actors that had played John Merrick spanned everywhere from David Bowie to Mark Hamill to most recently Bradley Cooper. So is that the play that it refers to in the credits that says 
this movie has nothing to do with that play. I mean, besides yes, having yes, yes yeah, being based on much of the same material, I think. Right. They're both based on the same source material, but they are both. They're similar, but very different in many ways as well. So uh, based on all of that knowledge, did you think you knew what the film would be before you watched it? I had an idea of the storyline. It would have shocked me if the storyline was much different than the play that I'm a part of. Um, But that's really all I knew. I was really excited to get a chance to see how this director and these actors portrayed the individuals that I've the characters that I've become very close with in the stage production. So I was really interested to see how all of it was going to come together. Uh, so a quick synopsis of what happens in this movie. Anthony Hopkins plays Dr. Frederick Treves, a Victorian surgeon who comes upon a man with extreme physical deformities in a traveling sideshow. The man is named Joseph John Merrick, uh, the titular elephant man, which I guess was another interesting point is that I guess this guy's name isn't actually John or wasn't actually John in real life. It was Joseph. Correct. I believe that they found around 1980, that's when they realized that his name was actually Joseph Merrick and not John. They had gotten him mixed up with his um, brother, who was John Merrick, um, who died at a very young age. And he had just been mistakenly known as John Merrick. That may not have actually been his brother. True. There is some, um, some of the stuff I was reading is that John Merrick may not actually have been related. I wasn't quite sure. I didn't do much digging into that, but... Certainly. And we'll get into some of that a little bit later about the differences between, you know, real life in this film. But uh, so after displaying Merrick at a conference, Treves treats him for a severe beating injury from his sideshow handler. Merrick is hesitant to show his intelligence at first, but is gradually brought out of his shell during his extended hospital stay. While some who make his acquaintance see his true nature, including the hospital governor played by John Gielgud and a famous actress played by Anne Bancroft, uh, he is still shunned and gawked at by the general public. Is there a place for him in wider society, or is he forced to live out his life in hiding? That's the question, which is answered <laughs> by history and by the end of the film. So I guess just to start out, um, this is a, I don't think we've mentioned this to this point, but this is a David Lynch film. And I don't think we've, have we reviewed a David Lynch film yet, Jessica? Um, I don't think we've reviewed a film. We've discussed uh I don't even know how it came up, but I feel like we've had conversation about Twin Peaks and some other things at other yeah, points in time. Yeah, multiple times. But and, I, and this is definitely over a decade before Twin Peaks. And this is one of his, I think, this is his first commercial film, is what I would say. Yeah. He had directed Eraserhead before this, but I think general audiences didn't really know who he was. Um, so David Lynch is known for his very, I guess, surreal and often off-putting indirect style and in all sorts of things from cinematography to um, the plotting of his films to he does a lot of the sound design himself too so I guess the first question I wanted to throw out there is what's everyone's experience with him to this point I mean I know Jessica you're a big fan of the original Twin Peaks series yeah that's I guess that's really my only David Lynch experience. I don't know that I've I've watched much much else of his until this. I also had not seen The Elephant Man prior prior to this. Yeah, I guess that's the other thing we should mention is I don't think any of us had seen it. Had you seen this, Adam? Nope. Oh, okay. So we were all kind of going into all this. Of us. All right. Blind. Good company. All right. <laughs> so yeah, no, I I mean, yeah, my only experience um with David Lynch had been Twin Peaks. And I feel like I agree. I mean, like you said, Charlie, it's this comes uh, you know, like a you know, at least a decade prior and um but I, I, I don't know. I could. There were touches. There were elements that I were like, yeah, that's that's David Lynch, <laughs> particularly in the opening and closing sequences. Uh, yeah, which we'll get to. Yes, I think in great detail later in the episode. Uh, Bran, how about you? Have you seen any David Lynch before this? I had not actually. I Adam kept saying it's a David Lynch film. It's a David Lynch film, and I'm like, I I don't actually know what that means. <laughs> So when we started watching it and I, you know, we saw the opening and, and I looked at him and I go, David Lynch, he goes, uh-huh. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> I get it now. Um, <laughs> but this was, this was my first experience with David Lynch. Um, so, so yeah. I would say that it's not a bad place to start. It's by far the most accessible thing of his that I've seen. Adam, how about you? Uh, I think the only David Lynch thing I've watched all the way through prior to this was Dune. Oh, Dune. Yeah. I think Dune, the problems with Dune aren't its David Lynchiness. It, the problems with Dune is that it's basically incomprehensible without having read the books ahead of time. Right. I saw the David Lynch version of Dune before I read the book. 
And I was like, this is just strange Lynch crap, and I don't understand it. And I read the book, and I was like, I, I agree with exactly what you're saying, Adam. It's like, this is this would be hard to film. I guess we'll see again pretty soon, you know, maybe in a few years. If I think it was Denis Villeneuve is doing a version of it now. So, uh-huh. so the things I would say definitely his touches were the beginning of the film, the end of the film, and... The middle. The middle. <laughs> the whole thing. No, no. I mean, the opening like some sequence, dream sequences, the sequence. Yeah. There's, a, there's a dream sequence? There was a dream sequence of the work with the workhouse that he's laying in bed and he's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yes. the, and there's like men mm-hmm. and you see their backs for like no reason. Yes. And it's just kind of an odd sequence and it's not explained. It just kind of, it just hangs there. And you're like, all right, now we're going to go back to the plot. <laughs> I The other parts of the, as I can assume, is the David Lynch essence was the uh the stage play when he was watching the play oh, yeah. that's definitely everything true, yeah. was just bleeding together and a cacophony of insanity we had that and then also every every time the clock told was an interesting touch to me the imagery of going up through the clock and into, into the tower that that was very uh specific to this director or this film style yeah he does like his upward angled shots yeah. So what do you think, are, Jessica, what are some of the hallmarks that maybe you saw in Twin Peaks and this film as well? Um, like, well, I mean, I was making a joke, but yeah, he does kind of like interesting camera angles, like looking at something to try to show that it's supposed to be significant. Or you're supposed to be, I don't know, picking up on an emotion. And I will say I am not at all an expert most of the time I'm like, yeah, I'm not really sure what you're trying to do here. Yeah. So I can't say like what the significance is he's trying to bring to it. But like you were saying, Brienne, like that like kind of shooting upward at the at the clock or showing the inner workings of the clock, like while well, it's going going off, but it doesn't necessarily do anything with the story except to maybe give a feel, like make mm-hmm. something feel eerie or makes feel something scary. Um and then uh, yeah, with the both the opening sequence and the closing sequences, he likes to um I don't know, interject uh, or like overlay, fade in and fade out different images, have it be kind of choppy, almost in like a stop action style of shooting um, and to make something feel, at least with Twin Peaks, I always felt like it was supposed to be uh, interjecting a feeling of the supernatural, uh, something otherworldly. And that's what it felt like to me in the opening and closing sequences. Would the fact that it was in black and white add to um, the stylistic elements of David Lynch? Would that be something that he would try to push the envelope it being a 1980s film, but then filming it in black and white. Uh, I know Eraserhead was black and white. I'm trying to think of cert- oh, certain sections of the new, the Twin Peaks, The Return, so the new series were completely black and white. So he does like to use that technique. Do you know why? I think with the black and white in this one, it felt very appropriate to me, it's, especially since this, you know, it's set, it's very much a, you know, a docudrama, film art, like, those types of movies, it really gave that feel that this is an older story, that this is an older tale to tell, but still relevant today. I don't know. I just felt the black and white really worked well with this story. I have quotes. Oh, okay. Uh, this is from David Lynch. My policy on color is that I don't like it, maybe because I haven't learned to use it properly. Whatever the reason, it doesn't thrill me. It looks cheap and goofball. Although I do like brown and brown is a color. Black and white is so pure. And because it's pure, everything is heightened in a way. It just has more power. I've never been pressured to shoot in color. Mel Brooks was really hot for the idea of me doing Elephant Man in black and white. Nobody bothered me on Eraserhead either. I wish I had made Dune in black and white. Blue Velvet was the first film that really felt as if it should be in color. It had the right mood. Black and white would have killed the neighborhood feeling, the small town story feel. Color had the warmth that that film needed. Uh, The other thing, interesting thing you just kind of snuck in there too, was that Mel Brooks was actually a producer on this film, which I found fascinating. Yes, he was. In fact, his name is not in the credits because he didn't want it. He didn't want people to judge the movie based on seeing his name. Like it was somehow supposed to be humorous or not to be taken seriously. But um, yeah, he has a production company, which uh, put out several. I mean, which put out movies, not just including his comedies, but I looked it up and I guess The Fly was from his production company. The Jeff Goldblum version of The Fly. And then uh, our favorite solar babies, Adam, as you recall. Solar babies. <laughs> anyway, off topic, but still, yeah. So, what are we talking about? Black and white. Yes, we were talking about why you shot in black and white. I mean, like I, I agree with Brienne. I think you know, being a Victorian era story, I think it's appropriate. It felt appropriate. He also did a lot of fade in, fade outs 
at the end of scenes. It felt very, I don't know, did, did anyone else that feel kind of like old Hollywood style scene transition? Yeah. Like you might not have seen quite as much by 1980. So it did kind of feel like an older film. A little film. throwback. Yeah. Uh, so another thing that David Lynch is very well known for is involvement in, you know, not only scoring of the film, but or scoring of his film and TV projects, but uh, his sound design as well. He's actually credited as one of the sound designers on this movie. And then when he does Twin Peaks stuff later, he's credited as the primary sound designer. Yeah. So, I mean, Brand, you were talking about the clock tower. Yeah, I think there are elements of sound, but that I thought were interesting. The clock tower being one, which I thought was iconic of, you know, I mean, John Merrick's life was not a very long one. He died at the age of 27. In his short life, a lot happened to him and that his life still kept moving forward, which is what time moves forward, right? Like the click, the clock chiming and everything that's happening to him, life around us still moves forward. So I don't know if that's why he was utilizing the elements of that clock, but I kind of felt it was very ominous. The shortness of life of the really accentuating that John Merrick had such a impact and such a short life. Um, but the other things that I thought were interesting within the sound was the lack of it. Silence in some ways is more terrifying than the addition of the sound. So hearing things like the steel toed boots clicking on the floor and that being the only sound you hear as the night porter would walk down the hall or um, just very slight elements of sound I thought can, were very powerful in this film. So I thought the sound design was actually well used for telling the story. Yeah, I liked that labored breathing or wheezing or his kind of perpetual congestion sounds were well used. And sometimes that was the only sound you'd hear. And one thing that was kind of a through line with a lot of the sound of the movie is, you know, between the clock and the trains and just Victorian England in general, is just all the machinery. Saw at the very beginning of the movie, there's even a line about it saying something about how inhumane machinery is. I think Anthony Hopkins delivers that line. So there was lots of loud machine noises in a lot of the scenes that were just very traumatic. Or like even the clock tower. So I mean, you've got the time aspect which you're talking about, Bran, but also that even though that's a place where he's out of the public eye, it's kind of inhumane to put him there as well, right? It's abrasive. Right. So or like we have the train station, you know, where everyone starts chasing him and the back alleys where he gets beaten and that's just one constant throughout the entire movie is these loud machine noises. Well, and I thought that that's an interesting thing to bring up because the sound was used as a moment of chaos. And, you know, when he's being beaten, when he's being um, tortured or tormented, all of those are full of sound. And if you're someone who likes the silence where there's such the drastic shift in the silence to the sound, it's very jarring. And it really helps to build that feel of extreme trauma when he's being chased in the um, the train station and when the people are coming into his room. Like, I, I just sat there in complete horror. And the sound definitely was making it even more traumatic. So I don't want it to sound harsh, but I felt like there were big chunks of this movie that moved unnecessarily slowly that I had a difficult time or like there were, you know, a lot of you know stories moving along. I'm doing great. And then we'll just like pause on something for a really long time. And I'm like, and I totally get the point that's trying to be made. And then we proceed to pause <laughs> for a couple more, you know, like 30 to 60 seconds longer dwelling on something beyond the point at which the audience would understand what you're going for. And so I didn't fully understand the utility. Could you give an example of that? The duration of time it takes for him to journey back from France to England. Oh. Like how much time you spend watching. And, and obviously you get great action the second he gets off the boat and there's like it's very traumatizing and it's, you know, because that's when he gets taunted and that's when he gets chased and cornered. And, and so there's a lot of action after that. But from the time he gets out of his cage um, oh, and, is, and like gets yeah. to a, you know, mm -hmm. wanders to a boat and then the time on the boat and the time that he's on the train and the time that you watch the train. <laughs> Like coming and the time you spend looking at the ceiling of the train station as he comes into the train station. All those elements, I don't want them to be cut. That's not at all. But there were certain parts where I'm like, okay, like I don't understand why we're spending so much time on it. Do you think that's just because that's how movies were made back then? And we've just been trained in the intervening 38 years to be more comfortable with a more fluid, rapid editing style? 
I, I, I would agree with like a general public feeling that there's been a shift that for, but for me personally, I don't usually mind slower films like that's and so for this one, it to me, it was noticeable and slightly annoying in places. And so I don't usually find that annoying. So it felt particularly long. I thought I'd bring it up. I personally did not uh, notice. I didn't have any problems with the, the pacing. Like if you had prior to this, if you had asked me, how was the pacing? I would have been, oh, it was fine. I didn't notice any problems. So. I think what's interesting, though, is that I did notice that it they did take a long time in that transition, right? Mm-hmm. I agree with you, Jessica. They really did. Um, but I also find it interesting that the minute that he started getting chased and attacked, that you notice that even more. That it might have been a complete. It might have been purposefully done that way, so that the intention of the last little bit of the movie and how quickly it moved felt more intense because he took more time on that other part. So it might have been a stylistic thing. What's interesting that another thing is that in the stage production, my director is considering silence as a character in the play. So those long drawn out moments actually also you see them in the stage production as well. So I find it interesting that you you picked up on it in this movie when it's also something that you would see in the stage as well. I just also want to add that we went and saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom today. (laughs) which uh, is a very, you know, modern movie. But there's definitely moments where I was just like, oh my gosh, just get on with it. (laughs) So, which is not a feeling I ever had during The Elephant Man. So I'm going to make a hot take here and suggest that The Elephant Man is a better movie than Jurassic World (laughs) Fallen Kingdom. How dare you, sir? So John Merrick's played by John Hurt, who is actually nominated for an Academy Award for this. What did you all think of his performance? I mean, he's got a lot of makeup on, a lot of impressive makeup that he's got to work through. Do you think he did that pretty effectively? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think that, um, well, I did at, after, you know, the kind of story was underway or probably during one of the times I thought it was moving too slow, <laughs> thought, uh, you know, you know, had some time to step out and go, man, I had to take a lot of time to get in and out of this every day, <laughs> every day for shooting. Yeah, like five or six hours. Yeah. And the consistency, because it is as elaborate as it is that to be as consistent as they were with the makeup and the amount of movement that they put in. I mean, I do know that they, first of all, that they cast his makeup based on uh, Merrick's actual skeleton. So like they use that as part of their basis. Uh, I also know that the makeup was so uncomfortable for John Hurt to wear that uh, they only had him film on alternate days because there was no way he could do two days in a row in the makeup. And there's a there's a story uh, that he reportedly called his wife and said something to the effect of, I think they finally found a way to make me hate acting <laughs> because of the intense uh, the, the requirements of the makeup. And I thought I, I thought his performance was phenomenal. Joseph Merrick was so I've seen pictures and images of him and John Hurt did such a great job of recreating the the disformity of the body, of the way that he was walking, of the physicality of it. I mean, he did such a great job with that. On top of it, with the speech, Joseph Merrick was very hard to understand. And Dr. Treves was one of the few people that could actually finally learn how to understand Merrick when he was speaking. And John Hurt, I thought, did a great job of keeping that speech, keeping the physicality of the character and still emoting and still knowing exactly what he was feeling through the entire experience. I mean, it, it was absolutely incredible. And it was it, I just couldn't there are no words, I think, to describe for me on how great I think he did in that role. Uh, one thing I really enjoyed was that his speech was very labored, like when he first starts to speak about, you know, 40 minutes or so into the film. And I had sort of a game with myself where I wasn't allowed to turn on the subtitles to hear what he was saying, because I was pretty sure it was on purpose. So I had to very much strain to try to understand what he was saying. So as the movie went on, he became more and more comprehensible. And I thought that was a nice evolution of the character that, that he did a good job presenting. It's funny because I didn't turn the subtitles on either. I was like, you know, I'm going to try to listen to it um, and understand everything. And so the only time I did, I did cave at the very end um, when he's finishing his model and he goes to get up and he kind of puts his hand to his face. You know, you can tell, you know, you know, from the, the characters just blatantly telling you that he's dying. And he says, it's 
And then he stops and then there's like a sound and I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be picking up on him saying something else. And so I turned the subtitles on and it actually doesn't even put any subtitle to the sound. (laughs) And so I backed up again and listened again. And I think he said finished. I think he says it's finished. Like oh, went after, and yeah. but but uh, like the subtitles did not help me. I thought it was really funny that I finally caved and turned them on, and it didn't <laughs> help. <laughs> the part I turned on the subtitles briefly was the part where a separate character entirely says that he's dying. Yes, because they hadn't mentioned it at all in, in the movie to the, this point, and so they're talking with him not even in the room, and it's like, does she know that he's dying? And I was like, wait, what did she say? Exactly, I, I did the same thing. I'm sure like, that's wait, what? what? <laughs> I was aware, you know, he was deformed, but I didn't know that. That necessarily meant he was imminently going to die. Yeah. Go team, no subtitles. Yeah. <laughs> well, good good job. Yeah. Like I tried I said, my best. I, I feel I feel relatively vindicated. I mean, I did cave and turn them on, but they were of no use to me. So I'm gonna say that I essentially watched this movie with no subtitles. <laughs> uh another stand-up performance by Anthony Hopkins. Gosh, um, he's so young. He's so young, yeah. And Although he has been reported as saying that he thought this was a boring role. <laughs> oh. Yeah, well, because he was just a nice guy and he didn't have a lot to do except just be nice the whole time. This movie or was based off of the book that Dr. Frederick Treves wrote, um, The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences. And from what I've heard, Dr. Treves is actually doesn't have the same sort of personality that... Anthony Hopkins was portraying him as. He's actually an extremely clinical, research-oriented individual. Like, And as he got to know Merrick, he became more... He did start showing more and more personality, but it was still a very buttoned-up, um, very still a very clinical um, persona. And one of the things that the writer of both the play and of the movie, they wanted to humanize Dr. Treves a little bit more. Um, I still think Anthony Hopkins did a great job with it. He was definitely able to add that human element to Dr. Treves, um, especially even at the very beginning when he first sees uh, Merrick, uh, when he, the first uh, the reveal and you look at his face and then he cries. I just thought he brought the emotion to the part that it needed um, from a clinical research scientist to be able to bring that humanizing um, element to him. There's one particular part that I loved where the scene where John Merrick is overcome with emotion because he he now knows that Anthony Hopkins is his friend. And Anthony Hopkins has this reaction when he sees how emotional uh, John Merrick is. He's kind of almost startled. Yeah. And where that's, that, he doesn't that's... quite know, like he doesn't want to get too emotional with it or he doesn't know how to handle his emotions. So he's just like, yes, we we are friends. Yeah, it was those very yeah. sterile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that but, is very British, though. That yeah, is a very British reaction. <laughs> which is which is fine, but that's the I same reason when you said you know it was a boring role, like he just had to be, um, or like you could understand it because he just had to be like nice the whole time. I'm like, but not overly. Like it was like he definitely held back. Um, and I think in that scene you're describing, that's what made me think of it is that at the time that he's like yes you know your my life is essentially like i'm happy every hour of the day and my life is like better because of you and he's like well it's late i should go (laughs) it's essentially like kind of how i felt like he disentangles and he hesitates again at the door and says good night and is like this very like a good night slash goodbye and and i totally you know anthony hopkins is amazing it was great but yeah that that distance Sort of a warm-up role for uh, Remains of the Day. That's what I thought of. And that is completely what I was going to say next. You, you, uh, <laughs> I stole it. You totally mind-read. So it's going to be like, well, you know, if you want to see even less. <laughs> <laughs> Which I actually really like the Remains of the Day. I don't want anyone to think that I don't. I actually really oh, yeah, like that too. movie because I think it does so much with so little displayed emotion. But that's what I'm saying is it? it reminded me very much of that. I thought also, as Adam mentioned, it's a very British emotion, uh, the way um, that he handles a lot of that, the touchy-feely moments with Merrick, although he does let his guard down, which I thought there was a couple of beautiful moments that Anthony Hopkins had. Um, The entire part with the picture frames or the pictures on the mantle, where he starts getting himself like excited to show his family and to see you know, his interaction with John Merrick on a very friendly level. I thought that was absolutely beautiful. And if you notice later on, John Merrick ended up having his own pictures on his mantle, Mm -hmm. um, which I thought was a beautiful touch. 
Um, I also thought it was interesting where as the movie progresses, he gets more and more disheveled. Um, he gets a little bit more weary. You can see his hair get a little bit messed up. Um, and then the moment when his wife comes into the room and she sees him like staring off into the distance going, am I a good man or a bad man? That he himself is starting to have this conflict of consciousness that um, I actually, I, I think was very much what Treves was going through during this time. And then I like that even in the most of all of that, he continues going down this road. And then when they find Merrick, all he does is he just hugs him, doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything. He just hugs him, which is extremely out of character for Treves. Um, and it just shows how much John Merrick has changed Treves as well, that the story arc isn't just about John Merrick, that it is also about the arc of Treves, which I thought Anthony, like I said, I, I thought he did a great job with that. Sir Even if he Anthony. thought it Huh? Sir Anthony. <laughs> Sir Anthony Hopkins. Even acting the f*** out of it when he's bored. <laughs> <laughs> he can't help himself. <laughs> this is a movie overloaded with talent, by the way. Three <laughs> Knights and a Dame. <laughs> Sir John Hurt. Sir Anthony Hopkins. Sir John Gielgud. Dame... I don't remember her name. <laughs> Wendy Hiller. Dame Wendy Hiller. Thank you. She played For some Mrs. reason, I thought it was Maggie Hiller, but I knew that wasn't right. She played Mrs. Mother's Head. So yeah, I was just about to ask if she was the head nurse. If you yeah. look. And yeah. then. Sir Kenny Baker of R2-D2. Yes. Oh. <laughs> He's not a sir. <laughs> but it is Kenny Baker. He's the like principal uh, dwarf. I will confess that um, John Hurt, you know, and I mean, obviously just this ridiculous list of you know productions that he's been in he was ton of uh you know theater stage acting and as well as a lengthy filmography you know whatever so going through the list whatever, and seeing that he's in harry potter i'm clicking in my brain through all of the characters going which one which one which one which one which one and i i did have to look at it because i did not place him as ollivander until until it, the internet told oh me. yeah yeah I mean, I also looked through his filmography, and I definitely had the moment of, oh, John Hurt's in Harry Potter? Oh, yeah, he is, right? But I also had that reaction. I was like, John Hurt's in Indiana Jones 4? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, real quick, I do want to talk Sir John uh, Gilgund playing um, Dr. Uh, playing Cargom. I also thought he did a great job because you do see a little bit of a change in him, which I think shows a lot of what society was, um, how society was changing too. I think a lot of that was portrayed through um, the character of Gom. Uh, Dr. Car, uh, Car Gom had a nice interaction between Treves after Merrick had had the, um, where he all of a sudden started spouting off Psalm 23. Gom says, can you believe the life this man must have led? And Treves says, yes, I think I do. Gom said, I don't think so. I don't think anyone could. Um, I just really, that was one of the lines that just really hit me um, when I was watching this show or this movie. Actors we want to talk about her. I think those are the main, two, or main three really, right? Unless anyone wants to talk about Anne Bancroft who did, did fine. I mean, but. I was actually shocked on how little of a role she had in this. Me too. That's what I was thinking is that, you know, she, she, it seemed. Okay. So essentially her role is somebody who's famous and pretty um, who takes an interest in him sees him as a human being to the extent that, you know, she kisses him and says, you're no elephant man, you know, or whatever, you're Romeo, which is fantastic. And then at the end, you know, has gives him this like triumphant moment of not only attending the theater, but having the performance like dedicated to him and the standing ovation. And, you know, she gives him this. And like you said, with how small of a role it was, like, I feel like that could have been like filled in by any miscellaneous pretty <laughs> female mm -hmm. actress who didn't, ha you know, have the weight or the, the um, I don't know, chops of an Anne Bancroft. Well, Merrick did befriend um, Mrs. Kendall, the, um, the actress. And um, she is partly responsible for getting him kind of accepted into the society that she lives in. But I just found it so interesting that she ver she was more mentioned by name than she was in person. Um, I know we're going to talk a little more about how the play is different than the movie, but she had, plays a much bigger role in the play. And so it was kind of, I was like, oh, I want to see Mrs. Kendall. And I was like, that, that was it. <laughs> I also just want to point out that Aunt Bancroft is married to Mel Brooks. So that's probably why she's here. Oh, there Everybody you go. knows that. <laughs> everybody knows that. I feel like everybody knows that. Don't want to leave any audience members unedified. <laughs> We've already touched on a little bit the fact that the story presented in this movie is not precisely the story as it happened 
in real life. In fact, there's a lot of things about the story that are just being pieced together, you know, in recent years. So I guess maybe let's talk a little bit about what are, what are the differences? Um, one of the main differences I saw was that I don't believe John or John Merrick didn't run away from the hospital, wasn't taken from the hospital. Once he was at the London hospital, he was there. The incident where he was um, kind of like in that traveling circus, actually, I believe is supposed to be when he was in Brussels. And that actually happens before um, he gets taken to the uh, London hospital. Well, before he gets taken to permanently live at the London hospital, he'd been taken by Treves to be in front of the, the various conferences at that point. Right. So he goes to Brussels and then I believe he gets robbed. Um, and that's when he starts, basically, he got attacked and he ends up getting himself back to London. The only identification he has on him is his card for Dr. Treves. And so they contact Dr. Treves and that is how John Merrick, um, finally, he gets admitted into the London hospital and then that's where he begins. They allow him to stay then for the rest of his life. Um, so which is what's interesting is that that is actually the storyline of the play itself. So that little element where he's traveling back to London does not happen at that point in his life at all. It actually happens much sooner. And fun fact, that's actually the character that I get to play is one of three pinheads that are on the freak show. We befriend Merrick, but then we show up in all of the dream sequences after that. And ultimately, we are the ones that end up taking his pillows away and allowing him to go to sleep in his dreams. Oh, huh. as a side note. Um, but that's one of the big differences between the play and the movie, at least, is the play kind of follows his life a little bit more, but has a little more artistic elements to it. It's like if David Lynch were to have made the play production, he probably would have loved that part of it. <laughs> so with the discontinuity in the film, I like knowing that it makes me and well, even in watching it, I think I felt like it was supposed to be a little flowers for Algernon kind of <laughs> moment of yeah. having tasted being free of that life and then getting pulled back into it. Uh, that guy, Freddie Jones, whatever is that character's name is. Uh, I hate that guy. Yeah. <laughs> the Night Watchman. But, oh, yeah. No. Reporter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He does get a little interesting speech, though. I think the last time we see him about, you know, I'm just the guy who's charging money for it. It's these other people that are the weird ones who actually want to see it. And in a lot of ways, it's their fault, too. But it's something that's like, oh, I mean, he doesn't have Classic a good point. about Yeah, exactly. I also found it weird that that's the one point in the movie where there's like just this weird pun about him getting sacked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of out of character for the rest of the movie, but I it's guess like I the one contribution it. Mel Brooks made. <laughs> <laughs> he was on set that day. <laughs> What's really funny is that's actually in the play, too. Is it? Oh, oh funny. Really? The element of him being sacked. By being hit with a sack. Oh, no, he wasn't actually hit with the sack. No, yeah, but okay. the pun is still, they do do a pun on the sacking in the play. Toby Jones, talk to your dad. Tell him he's being a jerk in this movie. At the beginning, society saying Merrick is the animal, Merrick is the, um, is the monster. And that was such a great ju- juxtaposition that society is more the monster, is more grotesque, is more hideous than anything that John Merrick could ever be. I actually thought it was interesting when um, he's reading the paper to the patrons in the pub. And we previously heard uh, Anne Bancroft's character read like the middle to end part of uh, Gom's letter in the paper about how like uh, Merrick, you know, despite appearances has like uh, an intelligent soul and, you know, kind and all this stuff. Whereas like the Night Watchman reads everything up to that point and then looks at it and then stops and goes, yeah, this guy's nuts. You want to see him? Yeah, I like that touch. That was so he knows, like he knows what he's doing. When um, they're the everybody's in his room and they're passing him around essentially like a toy and like pouring alcohol like in his mouth and it's just you know ridiculous. Uh, I was worried about two things: one, him actually fighting back and then being like jailed or beaten for you know Mm -hmm. whatever something like that, or two, him choking to death essentially. And then so I was. It's not like the actual outcome that's in the movie, whatever, is better. But at least right. I was, it was definitely one of those things where I'm just kind of like waiting for that to pass to be like, okay, okay, okay. Don't let him drown in front of me. Like, right. Well, there the- was that element where he laid back. Yeah. And he started to. Exactly. And I, w- I was thinking in, in my mind, I'm going, oh, this better not be the way this movie ends because I know how it's supposed to. <laughs> I was like, there's no way. And then when the porter did end up helping him up, you know, as one 
It's one like good. Uh, it's not even a good deed. Shred <laughs> of humanity. Well, yeah. That's that's yeah. how he makes his Saving money. His in- Attempt to save his yeah his yeah. business. <laughs> yeah. Now I think um, something that we didn't touch on that just before we we deviate um, is I did really like. I thought it was clever the way that they introduce you to his character altogether because obviously you have the opening very bizarre david lynch sequence where it's just kind of randomly creepy um and eerie and we emphasize the noises and things like that and you have a big build-up to anyone seeing him for the you know kind of for the first time where uh treve goes to like seek him out in the freak show and doesn't get to see him and then you know further builds up to him finally tracking him down and going to get there and even then you don't really see Merrick you watch Treve's face seeing Merrick and then the next time even you don't really you'll see him for just kind of like a flash but that's when he's presenting him to the society or whatever and it's just the silhouette backlit um to kind of like gradually introduce you to the grotesque or maybe you to build it up and i don't even know but i really liked the way it was revealed so by the time you actually see his face um really truly where the camera dwells at all um is when he's in the bell tower room and it's not very long before you transition to knowing that he's a, a kind intelligent person like you don't get too much of the other you just get the glimpses of what other people see right i thought yeah, I thought that was extremely effective at just kind of showing us through the camera that like, all right, everyone just perceives him as an object. I mean, they even call him it. Yeah. I think the first few times they referred to him. I want to see it. That that scene, like I that was one scene I didn't know existed that I was really startling was the scene at the conference where they have that silhouette of him mm-hmm. and you have the pointers that the yes. two demonstrators are using to point to different parts of his body silhouetted against that screen and that was i don't know it was really it's really pretty jarring yes like especially the movement of the uh, the pointers was very i felt like a very david lynch scene to me as well i want to mention that the way that that reveal is handled on the stage is that all you see is the silhouette of um, merrick through the beginning of it. So Treves goes to go see him and you see the silhouette um, behind a screen. And then the first time that you see John Merrick, he actually stands on stage as a normal man. And as Treves does that lecture, he starts to contort his body to be able to make the physical um, appearance similar to the elephant man. But they can't do the same sort of makeup that they do on stage. And they've actually, there's a note in the script that says you can't do that. Because the actor will basically be extremely um, injured by the deformity his body has to make um, to be able to do that role. So it says that it's only supposed to be a likeness of um, the Elephant Man as well. And so being that was the other thing I I loved was that reveal to see that they went completely um, in the direction of the Elephant Man. I thought was really, really cool. Um, But they still use the silhouettes just like the silhouettes are used in stage production as well. So in a lot of our reviews, we like to talk about what Roger Ebert <laughs> thought about the films. And usually he's very complimentary. Yeah. This film, he was kind of mixed on and actually referred to it as somewhat maudlin, which is kind of surprising. Roger Ebert's very big on empathy and displaying empathy through film. So it was a, a little bit surprising to hear him say that he maybe thought this was a little bit over the top or went too far. What do you all think about that? Do you agree with him? Do you disagree with him? I just want to point out, and sorry about this, Jessica, but in Roger Ebert's first couple reviews of Blade Runner, he also points out that uh, he says stuff like, oh, there's no like message about the human condition, right? So I think there's occasionally moments where he just misses the picture <laughs> that's, that's when it true. comes to this sort of stuff, right? Because I personally think this movie's all about like the human condition, right? And John Merrick is a mirror to humanity in some ways, and humanity comes up lacking, depending on, in some aspects, depending on some of the characters, but also they rise to the occasion in terms of other characters. So, Roger Ebert's wrong. I hereby (laughs) assert. Sure. I don't, uh, so I actually find some merit, but there were elements of it that I definitely thought were worth pointing out, and um, harsh or not, it's something to think about. And so the one... um, point that he brings up about um, somebody being praised um, for having courage 
when it's something that's not that they chose to do, that choice should maybe be some part of courage. And I'm not necessarily agreeing it, but I thought it was a thought-provoking question, something to think about. Um, and then the other part <laughs> that uh, of his review, the um, film's technical credits are adequate. John Hurt is very good as Merrick, somehow projecting a humanity past the disfiguring makeup, and Anthony Hopkins is correctly aloof and yet venal as the doctor. The directed by David Lynch is competent, although he gives us an inexcusable opening scene in which Merrick's mother is trampled or scared by elephants or raped. Who knows? An equally idiotic closing scene in which Merrick becomes the star child from 2001 or something. And that part, I couldn't agree with more. <laughs> which we are definitely going to get to just a, just a moment. <laughs> because I want to point out that in my notes, separate, because I didn't read any of the reviews until after I was done seeing the movie, but in the notes I took on the movie, in the opening scene, I'm like, is she being killed or raped? What's happening? Are we saying <laughs> the elephant man is the by- is the product of an um, elephant having sex with a woman? Is that what this is supposed very to be? Very literal take. Because I don't understand. And so then later I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> I see where we're going with this. Yeah, so personally, I'm going to have to disagree with Roger Ebert, too. I was pretty emotionally affected by the movie. There were a couple of scenes, like the where Anne Bancroft calls him Romeo. Mm-hmm. I actually got to me. Yeah. But especially the final scene where, um, I mean, maybe we can get into that a little bit, where he's been to the opera. We He's had a standing ovation from everyone there. He's finally been at least somewhat accepted by society and felt like a normal human being for just mm-hmm. an evening and there's a lot of foreshadowing in that scene and the rest of the movie beforehand but the part where anthony hopkins says or sleep well i think is what he says and i was like oh geez and like i had to watch the rest of that scene like that whole like two or three minutes probably more than that probably like three or four minute scene like knowing exactly how it was going to end and that i don't know i thought that worked really well I, it's a couple of couple of lone tears anthony hopkins tears <laughs> from me i mean this this movie is like you guys have mentioned already it is the foundation of what you know humanity and the human condition is um there's some absolutely beautiful moments and there's some absolutely terrifying moments and all of it is in a society that i could actually see happening even today um and i think it really is a, a very good um evaluation of who we are as a human race and that in the very end Merrick was more human than I think most of us are on any given day and so I could not disagree more with his his review of this film Jessica just mentioned the intro and outro of this movie yeah no very, I agree by that far part. the most David Lynch parts of the movie it's if you look at his other films, I think it's more like those two things than like any part in the middle. This is if you're going to be introduced to his his movies, I think this is the one to start with. So I guess what did we think the the intro, as we mentioned, was a woman being traumatized in some way by circus elephants. It's shot in a very sort of choppy, blurry, dreamy sort of way. And we've not been introduced to any characters at that point with like black backgrounds and no scenery. Uh, and then the final sequence is a bit more serene. It is a s- traveling through a star field and a picture of his mother appears. And then she reads some poetry to him first as a static image. And then her mouth starts to move as she words the poetry. And that picture also appears in the intro as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, what up with that? <laughs> I got. I'm not. I, I, that's the. That's the part of the review that I was like, "Yep, I agree with you <laughs> on that one part." So the whole thing with her being trampled by the elephants, I knew immediately that that's what was going on. But that's only because I I know about what they would say about John Merrick at that time in history when people truly believe that trauma that happened to a mother during while they were pregnant could affect the child in some way. And so he truly believed that his mother, who really was um, scared or traumatized by a circus elephant, truly believed that that's why he was the way he was. Um, in the play, he even jokes about it, that that must be why, I, you know, that's why I am the way I am. 
and you kind of throw it off as this little joke. But then when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, wait, okay, nope, yep, they're going to this absolutely literally. Okay. And then what's also interesting is the ending. Even in the play, there's they have this weird cosmic scene, right, where after he's um, having this weird dream sequence and that's what happens when he di- when um Merrick dies it's very it's parallels very much to the ending and the way David Lynch um handled his ending scene it wasn't exactly the same but it definitely had the same feeling so I just find that the parallels between both the film and the stage were are very interesting and very similar at least for the ending part of the show which is I mean funny because again we mentioned at the top that at the very end of the film there they go out of their way to state it's not based on the stage play at all but you're pointing out all these parallels which almost make me wonder because they couldn't have been in the source material right these are all stylistic choices so i wonder maybe there was some influence that just wasn't alluded to it's hard to say well or that david lynch just had that in the back of his mind as he was directing it wasn't based on the play i mean the words and the um the script was absolutely not the same but stylistically there are elements of it that are very similar. So I'm wondering if David Lynch just had it in the back of his mind, kind of, and then just happened to have some similar style um, choices. Now, granted, a lot of the style choices that we use in the play is based on the director, you know, who's directing the play as well. And our director is also a big fan of the 1980s, the, the movie. So we may be kind of pairing some elements in with it as well. Yeah, on my end, as far as the intro and the outro, I often just accept the fact that I'm not going to understand exactly what David Lynch means by certain things. So I did at least appreciate the sort of bookending of it. Like, here's trauma that happens to him even before he's born. Mm-hmm. And then the end of it's what happens to him, you know, as he's dying or after he's dead, I guess, maybe recommuting yeah. with his mother. So I at least appreciated that sort of stylistic... Symmetry? You know, sandwich. <laughs> yeah, symmetry. I guess, even though I don't really know, you know, why the deeper meaning of exactly what it's it's supposed to be, definitely all has a feeling to it. I was it. gonna say it creates a feeling. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give it, it, yeah. There's definitely sets a tone. So we also the last thing that we should all discuss, which we did bring up a bit before, was the makeup in this film, which was groundbreaking in a lot of ways. If you take a pic. I'll, I'll link to this on the show notes. If you take a look at what John Merrick actually looked like, the pictures of him from real life, it is so similar to what is in this movie, like surprisingly. I thought the one thing that they that I found it interesting that they didn't actually develop was his right hand. If you look in the images of um, Merrick, the right hand is extremely deformed to the point where it's absolutely useless. In the film, they just had a cover over it, like a mitten over it the entire oh, time. Yeah, yeah. They never even, it's like they it was been either too hard or it wouldn't have made a difference to be able to... Um, Ran out of money? Possibly. So they decided to put a sock on his hand. Um, like Arrested Development. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or John Hurt was like, that's going to take two more hours? No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so I just found it interesting that it is very clearly that something happened with the makeup where they just decided that that was it was easier just to cover his hand than it was for them to try and continue the arm prosthetic and going all the way down. Did Merrick not cover his hand? As far as I know, he didn't. It was or if he did, it was only on certain occasions. But all, all the photos have his shirt off, so it's hard to tell. Right. <laughs> um it's very known that his right arm was completely useless, basically, and was overcome with growth and almost club-like um, in appearance. So this, uh, a lot of people believed that this should have been nominated for an Academy Award of some sort for the makeup, but there was no category at that time. I was going to say it was nominated for costume design. Um, for best costume, but like you said, in 1981, there was no, there wasn't a category for the makeup. But the outrage was so great that they made one the following year as a direct result of the complaints. But I think I just I'm in awe that this film did not win any Academy Awards. Oh, lost to Ordinary People. Have you seen Ordinary People? I liked Ordinary People. I liked Ordinary People. More than this, though. (laughs) Yes. That's hard to say. You're such an Oscar voter. (laughs) Yes. I've often been called that. You're one of many. And then um, John Hurt was nominated for Best Actor, which he lost to Robert De Niro in Raging Bull. Okay, that one makes sense to me. Okay. <laughs> and then they lost out to Best Director, 
um, for uh, Robert Redford for ordinary people. So, and then it lost out to costume design for the movie Tess. Which is uh, Roman Polanski. It's, I think in all it was nominated for eight different things and won nothing. Correct. It won some BAFTAs. Does that count? <laughs> BAFTAs don't count. <laughs> Ouch. Ooh. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> I'm making a correction right now. Dear sir, <laughs> I was listening to your most recent podcast. <laughs> Brianna, what did you think? I very would much. Would you recommend it? Um, I very much like the movie. And yes, I would recommend it. Um, to everyone? The end? Oh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I would recommend it to everyone. I think it's, I think it's a story that needs to be told. I think, especially nowadays, I think it's even more important to tell the story of just basic, you know, the basic humanity of who we are. Um, and I thought this movie definitely did a very good job with that. I think this is a movie that I think everyone should see. Yeah, one thing I just think David Lynch has always done a really great job at grabbing grabbing your emotions and shaking them like whether or not you really understand exactly what he's trying to do at every point it always has an impact on me and this one i think in probably more straightforward way than any of his other work and yeah i would definitely recommend this as either a an inroad to watching other david lynch films or just be in in general like you're saying brand this is this is a good film that i i could recommend to basically anybody yeah, I definitely liked it, and I was a little cautious going in, knowing that it was a David Lynch film, <laughs> so I was expecting <laughs> it to be really, really strange. Um, no, I really liked it, and I felt if you could lose the beginning and ending, it still would have had the exact same effect on me, so I was okay with that. I, uh, I also thought it was really well done, and would recommend to anyone. And I just, when we were looking through, uh, trying to decide like whether it was worth renting on Amazon or if we should go somewhere else, and uh, there was a review on Amazon that described the movie as one of their childhood favorite movies. Hmm. And uh, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> and I just wanted to mention it. Well, hopefully, they grew up as a very empathetic human being. <laughs> yeah. Or, or they were on the wrong page. But either way. <laughs> They were watching Bar Bar or something like that. Babar. Babar. <laughs> so, Brianne, you watched something we thought you should watch. Now's your opportunity to tell the world something you think they should experience. Well, I actually have two. Oh. Um, I I have two. <laughs> does, does Adam allow it? He just, yeah, I allow it. Okay. <laughs> She's not you. <laughs> <laughs> the John Hurt movie that I think... Um, people should see is the 2013 South Korean film Snowpiercer. Oh, yeah. Which is about a, basically a huge train that an, an entire society lives within the train and its cars. And a group of individuals from the back of the train are trying to make their way up to the front of the train through all the different levels of society. I It also stars Chris Evans um, as the main uh, protagonist in the the film, but John Hurt plays kind of the wise um, old man that kind of helps him through his journey. Very, very well done. I was shocked when I first watched the movie because I really had no idea what it was about and turned out to be one of my uh, favorite movies that I'd seen. The other film that I think um, folks should watch is the 2014 docudrama, The Theory of Everything about Stephen Hawking. And I thought that was also very well done and a very good um, a testament to uh, the life of Stephen Hawking. And um, I really enjoyed that film as well. I'd like to point out that at least Eddie Redmayne won for his portrayal of uh, Stephen Hawking. Oh, he did. He won yeah. an Academy Award. Yeah. Unlike Sir John Hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. Eddie Redmayne wasn't going up against Raging Bull. Maybe he would have lost too. <laughs> That's, That's fair. That is a fair point. <laughs> uh, I also have two recommendations but my recommendations are closely related because uh as you may or may not know i am a hardcore doctor who fan and john hurt is a doctor in that he showed up in the 50th anniversary special the day of the doctor which i recommend that people should see uh he portrays the doctor who shows up essentially between the original run of the show and the relaunch of the show and so John Hurt's a great choice because he's the sort of actor who you could envision may have been cast in that like 16 year gap. And so that's a really like clever thing there. And he's just, as always, does a phenomenal job. 
So I'm going to suggest that, but I'm also going to suggest a related audio drama by a company called Big Finish. Uh, so John Hurt obviously has to share screen time with other actors playing the Doctor in the 50th anniversary special, but he gets to be the Doctor himself uh, in the first War Doctor box set, which is called Only the Monstrous. And you can check that out by going to www.bigfinish.com. Uh, Big Finish also has a Spotify uh, channel you can listen to if you want to listen to some of their stuff. I'm not sure if the War Doctor story is on there, but if you want to get a feel for the sorts of things they do, you can go check that out as well. So uh, basically what I'm saying is, yay for John Hurt. Maybe <laughs> rest in peace. Uh, so my recommendation this week, I'm taking up the mantle of physical media advocate for the week since Adam <laughs> didn't exactly do that. Uh, and I learned... <laughs> Through him and other sources that uh, you can buy Criterion films at Barnes & Noble for half price between now and I think sometime through August, which you said happens twice a year, Adam. Is that a consistent thing? Yeah. So every July and November, Barnes & Noble has their half off Criterion sale that I've taken advantage of a couple times. That's how I got the Lone Wolf and Cub box set for a reasonable price. In addition to having all the nice like extra features and stuff and really good transfers, Beautiful, gorgeous transfers. When you cut the price of a Criterion Blu-ray or DVD in half, suddenly becomes a very reasonable prospect. Even though the prices at Barnes & Noble are a little bit inflated still. uh, Well, it's some SRP. Right, exactly. So you can go and get like really good DVDs for like, or Blu-rays for like 15 bucks or something like that, which... 20 bucks, I think, is probably typical for the the Blu-rays. DVDs would be 15, yeah. And I recommend doing that. I, I think I have my eye on the Jacques Tati box set this time Ooh. around. Yeah. So I'm going to be at my peak pretentiousness, Jessica. I'm warning you right now to tell oh, you what Lord. I bought. <laughs> and I bought this because I knew that I could not. F- I tried looking for it elsewhere and I would have watched the streaming, but I couldn't. And it is a box set of the Decalogue, which was a Polish. Well, it's a television series, but it's actually a series of 10 movies that was aired on Polish TV back in the late 80s and it's good so far i've watched the first two it's how did you hear about this is one of roger ebert's like great movies or like series of great movies i've read a couple other articles about it too where people like you should see this except there's no way to see this Hmm. (laughs) like i think maybe there's very well regarded though and the nice thing about the Criterion version, too, is there's a couple of the films that were in the middle that you can watch the original run that would have been on TV, which would have been shorter, or the extended film versions of it as well. So, yep, that's that's my pretentiousness for the day. <laughs> I'm watching this rare Polish television series. If it wasn't half off, I wouldn't have considered it. But I think it ended up being 50 bucks, which it's less than $5 per movie i feel like you're balancing it out though charlie because while you did recommend this obscure polish television series you also earlier talked about watching many episodes of face off <laughs> and so i, I feel That's like true. i so feel many. like you're evening it out it's okay <laughs> um yeah uh so i am going to recommend because the watching this movie for the first time and actually even tying in a comment you made um uh, that Amazon review that you mentioned, Adam, about somebody saying it was like their favorite like child childhood film or something <laughs> like that. Similar, what I remember being kind of the first movie I saw about something like this, kind of like along this along these lines, um, is in growing up. I remember watching Mask and having a similar feeling to watching this because you know, in my junior high self, like that was mm-hmm. a that the was movie, a- right? Not the TV cartoon. Yes, the movie <laughs> with Cher and Sam Elliott and, you know, whatever. But, um, yeah, having watched not that. the Jim Carrey. No, not the Jim no, not Carrey No, not the movie. mask. No, not the mask. Just mask. And not the 80s cartoon mask. <laughs> I didn't even know there was an 80s cartoon mask, so we're cool. Oh, Anyways, yeah, was, but yes. Uh, it was great. The film with Cher and Sam Elliott and his mustache. That movie. Um, yeah, no, just remember, like, because as I said, at the the age I would have been at having seen that film for the first time, possibly even, I don't know, like 10 years old or something like that, like around that age range. And so kind of having that um, first experience that this film is, you know, similar um, story about humanity. So, Bran, thanks very much for coming on the show again. Thank you very much for having me. I really, I had a really good time. So... Tell us a little bit about how 
we could potentially see her play if we're in the area that you're in. Well, if you're in um, the East Valley of Arizona. Whoa, I live there. Whoa. <laughs> um, the show will be August 24th to September 8th on Friday and Saturdays um, at Zayo Theater in Apache Junction. And the show will be The Elephant Man. And there's some amazing actors that are doing this production. It's going to be an amazing show. So if you're in the area, we'd love to have you out at Zayo Theater between August 24th and September 8th. And as for us, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast. It's easy to do at our website, cinematicrespect.com. Also, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search for Cinematic Respect and you'll find us. Did you ever feel like... was slow at all, Charlie, or did you not notice? It? I didn't. I also didn't have any pacing issues, but knowing David Lynch, I, I believe you. Yes, <laughs> we're good friends. Biblically, <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear that podcast. <laughs> Talking with my good friend Lynch, the podcast. Um, so there's a lot of good performances. Okay, well, I guess I'm interjecting my own opinion there. There's a lot of performances in this movie. <laughs> no, you can't say you can, that. No, you can, there are a lot of. It's like saying we experienced That's some weather today. <laughs> right. Drives me crazy. You're violating Gracie and Maxims here. Stop it. <laughs>